0: In the last episode of Treasury and Turbulence, we heard strong words from two former sanctions breakers.
1: Who am
2: I hurting over here? They, they wanted to find us. They could still prevent these things, and they, they don't. Why do you let commodities exports happen? Why don't you police it and or educate better? If I wanted to ship it to North Korea, I'll bet I could have gotten away with it, and then after it got there, they would have policed it.
0: Are they correct? Do sanctions makers agree? And what do they think about the sanctions they enforce? I'm Nell McKenzie, and this is Euromoney's Treasury and Turbulence podcast. Step behind the scenes with me and let's look at how sanctions are made and enforced. What's it like to work at OFAC? And what should we expect from a UK sanctions regime? This podcast is supported by City's Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 96 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change. Here's John Smith. He left OFAC in 2018 to head up the national security practice at law firm Morrison & Foresters. John's career as a compliance expert was years in the making.
1: I worked at OFAC for over 11 years, including the last three years as its director.
0: So what happens at OFAC when everybody gets a cup of coffee and they sit down for a day at work?
1: An investigation can begin with classified information that OFAC receives from law enforcement, intelligence agents, foreign governments probably the most common is through voluntary self-disclosures from banks or other global companies that come into OFAC and say they made a mistake and one party will come in but there may be nine other parties that were somehow involved in the transaction chain another way would be what are called blocking and reject reports and those reports and those voluntary self-disclosures are literally what makes up the bulk of OFAC's enforcement investigations over the course of a year.
0: But all of this information collection, it doesn't happen as quickly as you think.
1: It may simply be picking up the phone and saying, OK, we saw this in the paper. Can you explain this? And then there may be far more formal enforcement investigations that can literally take years as they dig into the facts.
0: So John oversaw lots of cases. If you look through the OFAC penalty notices all available on the web, you can see a lot of big companies get caught out for intricate reasons. Like when a Canadian Honda dealership leased 13 cars to a Cuban embassy. However, there are other cases where you wonder, what were they thinking? Like the religious group that organized a humanitarian aid trip to Cuba, but were actually just selling fun-in-the-sun holiday tours. Or the cosmetics company that decided to buy false eyelashes on the cheap from North Korea.
1: The dumbest cases involve those who believe they can sneak something by the U.S. government, and it really doesn't pay to try to do so. The U.S. government has multiple sources of information. And when you lie to the U.S. government, you not only make it worse for yourself in terms of the potential penalty on the enforcement side, but you also really harm your reputation.
0: Have you seen some cases where there's a huge amount of denial on the part of the company?
1: Absolutely, denial. We all can face denial in our personal and professional lives. And when you find that your company may have violated economic sanctions, once you utter your expletive, then you move on and try to find out what happened.
0: As for the cases we heard about in the first episode, where armed officers showed up at Tim's company to charge him for shipping machines to the wrong warehouse in China, John is pretty insistent. OFAC would have tried to reach them before there was a charge.
1: Virtually every OFAC enforcement case simply is done via paper. You get an email or a subpoena or something through the mail.
0: How could Tim have avoided his situation? Can the government afford a system of prevention rather than enforcement?
1: I think OFAC does a system of prevention. OFAC actually puts out a list of those individuals and entities that it believes are of concern and that US persons should not deal with. OFAC acts with both the carrot and the stick, offering guidance and other information in the form of that carrot, but compliance doesn't mean anything if people see that you won't enforce. The enforcement cases it puts out, it also does as lessons for industry.
0: Out of the thousands of sanctions breaks that OFAC investigates every year, 95% of them, John says, ends up in a cautionary letter. For John, the sanctions program as it is today is working.
1: I grew up in an era of anti-apartheid sanctions and understood the value of an alternative between words and war, between diplomacy and boots on the ground, can be economic sanctions that don't involve a loss of life, but can help change negative conduct, malign conduct that you see around the world.
0: Brian O'Toole worked at OFAC as John's special advisor. He's now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council.
3: Uh, Where I focus on kind of the intersection between economics and national security, uh, with a particular focus on economic and financial sanctions.
0: Brian takes a pretty clear line on sanctions breakers. If you run a business with international clients and customers, you have to be aware of the risks.
3: You had somebody who was exporting to China who had no export compliance program. And China's not a low-risk jurisdiction to export to. And so you can't behave like it's just sending it to Texas from California.
0: That's why you charge more money for a product you sell abroad.
3: There's there's a risk premium when you're dealing with these higher-risk countries, China included. That risk is there because there's risk. You don't just get a higher return because you're shipping it to China. You get a higher return because China is a higher risk jurisdiction.
0: And though you might not see anything about sanctions when you incorporate your business or you pay your taxes, if you export goods, the subject matter of sanctions should appear on your bank paperwork.
3: You will see the words OFAC typically in the, the documents you get from a trade perspective. You will see Commerce Department typically show up in there too. You, you know, export controls.
0: But Brian understands that some people just get caught in the crossfire of sanctions restrictions.
3: And look, I, I don't want to minimize the fact that sanctions have an impact on ordinary people. That is, after all, kind of the point. When you're designing sanctions, I mean, we faced this when I helped write the Russia sanctions in 2014, you understand that there's going to be some micro-impact. What you try to prevent are macro-impacts. You know, the point is to hurt the other guys more than you're hurting yourselves.
0: And from the regulators' point of view, it's about the trade-offs.
3: And the trade-offs with Iran are this is a country that supports terrorism, that blew up Americans, kidnapped Americans, continues to kidnap Americans. This is a serious security threat to the United States. And do you then want business with that jurisdiction to continue as normal? And the answer to that is no. And does it wrap in people who might you know, otherwise just be trying to make a buck and live the American dream? Like, yeah, it does. And that's unfortunate when some of those things happen, but you can't have it both ways.
0: Not just international relations, sanctions have become a tool to tackle crime.
3: Fully half of the SDN list is narco-traffickers. And it's, it goes under the radar, which drives me crazy, because it's among the most successful things that OFAC does. And the Cali cartel doesn't exist fundamentally except in the TV show Narcos. You know, that's a great success, and sanctions played a huge part of that.
0: OFAC is not the only regulator that pursues sanctions violators. It also works on joint investigations and with the Department of Commerce.
2: My name is Cordell Hull. I was uh, most recently the acting Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security at the U.S. Department of Commerce.
0: The BIS is the part of the U.S. Department of Commerce that concentrates, amongst other things, on sanctions.
2: We have about 120 badge-carrying, gun-carrying special agents who have full federal arrest powers. If you're a special agent, you might be doing things like talking to assistant U.S. attorneys, presenting to grand juries. If you're on the analyst side, you're probably looking at information from U.S. and foreign open-source materials.
0: The Department of Commerce comes by its information from a wide range of sources.
2: From just about any source you can imagine, often foreign counterparts. Sometimes industry comes in and industry will be a a whistleblower. The newspaper, sometimes somebody gets arrested and in order to try and fully cooperate, they roll over on somebody else and cases get built that way as well.
0: So you've been on both sides of the fence. When you were in the private sector, what did you wish the government would understand about what you were trying to do?
2: I wish the government had a better understanding that there really are companies out there who were really trying to do the right thing and through inadvertence or simply negligence didn't really intend to violate the law. Some of these cases take years to build. And when agents and and others are looking at evidence over the course of years, views tend to harden pretty substantially. And I can't fault the agents for that. It's just hard when you're looking at the same materials day after day over a course of years. And then by the time the investigation is no longer covert, and lawyers have gotten involved, trying to convince them that what they've seen in an email is not indicative of a willfulness to violate the law is sometimes quite difficult.
0: Then when you are working in government, what do you wish the private sector understood?
2: I was truly amazed at the way in which our agents and analysts approached their work and the thoughtfulness with which they, they pursued their job. That was really gratifying to me.
0: The most common complaint I've heard levied at sanctions makers is that communication could be better. Here is Justine Walker. She's the head of Global Sanctions and Risk... At ACAMS, which is an association of anti-money laundering professionals.
4: We rely so much on the private sector to implement sanctions. And so the argument from the private sector is we want to comply with the law, but can you make the law clear? Like if you find out
0: a business you're trading with is on a list, it's not so easy to just quit them.
4: The withdraw from a relationship can result in civil suit of millions of pounds if they get that wrong or lost contracts. And sanctions designations can be fluid. Last year, the US designations, 22% occurred post-US election. So you had 25% of the year's designations in that very short period of time, essentially over five weeks. And this is phenomenal.
0: While the US dominates in the international sanctions arena, other countries are now asserting their own distinct and independent sanctions regimes. And they don't always agree with America. And that can make compliance tricky if you just want to run your business and not get fined.
4: We are seeing the European Commission are putting out a new report around protecting against extraterritoriality of US sanctions. We've seen China bring forth their own blocking regulation against US sanctions. So the targets of those countries or countries who do not view that those sanctions are meeting their security needs will push back. And this is probably going to be an increasing theme for the next 10 years, I would imagine.
0: And now because of Brexit, Britain will join the fray as its own sanctions maker. Though before Technically, the UK could write its own policies under the Sanctions Act. It generally deferred to the EU's programme.
4: It is no longer possible for the UK to say that they are sitting behind EU sanctions and they are working with EU counterparts to implement EU regulation and guidance. The UK is now responsible for their own regime, so they will have to come forth with much more detailed guidance. And we have seen this increasingly happening over the past two years. But, you know, industry will also say they expect an awful lot more. But in 2016, the British OFAC
0: equivalent was established as part of the Treasury. It's called OFSI, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. Now that Brexit's done, OFSI is expected to gear up, but it won't be writing sanctions alone.
4: UK Parliament will have a different role in sanctions than they have previously had, So it's not just around the UK government, it's UK parliamentarians as well, and the scrutiny that they give to sanctions legislation and the effectiveness of that legislation and whether it is meeting parallel policy objectives. Do you
0: think they've made headway in how the different government departments work together? That was something you mentioned when you gave evidence at the Treasury Select Committee.
4: Sure, yes. I mean, when I gave the evidence to the Treasury Select Committee, one of the issues I raised was the humanitarian side. You know, the Department for International Development would be funding major programs, let's say, in Syria. Sea would be issuing guidance around compliance, and then you would have the Foreign and Commonwealth Office giving their view, and nobody had ownership. And these different branches of government will need to agree and coordinate. The issue here is not just about collaboration, but it's about ownership of policies and government working much more closely together.
0: Which means UK sanctions makers will need to become more vocal, more clear and take some risks.
4: Treasury lawyers are really known for being quite, quite careful lawyers. Um, this is the nature of a Treasury lawyer and that is a very good skill set for them but we're probably going to have to see them going into an arena which they may be slightly more uncomfortable with and making decisions which previously under the EU framework they didn't need to make. But so far, much of the focus has been on getting Brexit done. The journey to Brexit has absolutely, undoubtedly taken everybody's energy. And much of the coordination framework within government has been really around preparing the new autonomous regime.
0: What Ofsi will have to do next is figure out how to keep its staff. Like what we've been hearing, compliance investigators and supporting staff take years to become experts. Having a dedicated sanctions program here means a place to foster this kind of talent.
4: It's because it's not just policy. You know, you've got to look at this. This is long-term investigations. It's really looking at what is the guidance. You know, are industry aware of their compliance obligations? Are the compliance obligations clear enough? <laughs> with a relatively fresh starting point here, there's the opportunity
0: to drill down to the core of whether sanctions as a policy choice are fit for purpose. Here's Maya Lester, who you heard from in our first podcast. She's a barrister at Brick Court Chambers.
5: Measuring the success or otherwise of sanctions regimes is a very valuable exercise to engage in because if we're in the business of imposing sanctions, we do need to know, I think, a bit more about whether they're having an effect. And in theory, the government is going to be reporting to Parliament on the effectiveness of regimes every year. Whether it's doing it in a meaningful way or not, we have yet to see. But I think that's really important. Also, Ofsi has the opportunity
0: to become a
5: different kind of sanctions maker. One thing that's very important is having a, a responsive sanctions maker, as you've put it in your title. So the maker of sanctions has to be there to answer questions about what the sanctions mean, to hear representations from people at the sharp end, and to respond. I think that's something that the EU has done really badly, partly because it's 28, now 27 member states, all trying to join up their foreign policy in this area but it doesn't really have that kind of agency responsible for that public-facing kind of role. It's something the US has done a lot better, but the US sanctions are so well-resourced compared with everyone else in the world that I think it would be great if the UK could do that to some extent and have that kind of well-resourced agency if that were possible. Maya recently represented Dynamo Minsk, a football team that was
0: added to the UK sanctions list, because they were owned by someone who was on the Belarus sanctions
5: list. You might think, why on earth would a football team become subject to sanctions? Clearly it hadn't done anything wrong, but because of its ownership, it ended up on a list.
0: That meant the team couldn't play any matches or join any leagues, because ultimately the economic benefit would go to the sanctioned owner in Belarus. Maya helped fight the
5: sanction and had it overturned. But I think it is quite a good example of how all sorts of bizarre... Um, effects can result from these kinds of sanctions regimes that something that's pretty far removed you would think from the purpose of the sanctions regime uh, could end up in a whole host of litigation and one of the things that is really evident in the field of sanctions is that there are billions and billions spent on the whole process of trying to comply with and understand these sanctions regimes any bank or major institution or even a minor Uh, A charity or an NGO will talk about the enormous effort that they try and take to understand and, and comply with the rules, because being at the sharp end, as you say, of being somebody accused of being a breaker is so significant. And
0: a significant portion of this billion pound industry is dedicated to helping sanctions breakers back on their feet. Which we'll focus on in our next podcast.
4: Heads will roll, people being charged. It was an expensive lesson. We'll create a crisis war
3: room. There is no point if you don't have the buy in of the senior management.
0: But for now, please join me for the City House View. Welcome to the City House View. Joining me today is Edward Stoltenberg, a director in AML risk management at Citi's Treasury and Trade Solutions. Edward, welcome to the podcast.
6: Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion.
0: In this discussion of reliance between the government and the private sector, there's a lot of conflict.
6: Well, I think the conflict arises based upon how much reliance there is on the two. The government needs a lot of payment information and a lot of entity information. And then on the other side is how do financial institutions weigh the compliance risks is we don't want to continue to provide all these controls that aren't necessarily cost-effective and allow the business to continue. So we look to remove those particular entities from our profile. And that then creates the problem of de-risking for the government, where now they're saying, well, now you're pushing financial flows underground, and we can't monitor it.
0: So then what's the solution?
6: Allowing, I would say, organizations to to try new things and be allowed to fail. I think FinCEN and some of the other regulators around the globe are, are more open and willing to accept this based upon the the publications that they've released. But it's also a culture of compliance that's top down and bottom up. The guy that's got a good idea in your compliance department, you know, should be allowed to explore it and management should support it.
0: Does this get to the core of the problem then?
6: I think people are gonna c little bit of compliance fatigue across the industry is my general feeling. you you have to do a lot with less and it never seems to end. And again, a lot of these people want to do the right thing.
0: Is that because the sanctions programs and regimes have become more complex?
6: From my personal perspective, the way sanctions regimes are enforced at a financial institution is based upon list-based screening. And list-based screening is not a scalable solution. It creates too many false positives. Unfortunately, the government, that is their mechanism. And it's really not much I think else they can do. But what is a better way we can use that?
0: What kinds of innovations?
6: Machine learning, artificial intelligence, statistical analyses that allow us to address the inherent risk that we traditionally couldn't see before, especially in trade-based money laundering where you're relying on a correspondent bank's due diligence on an entity and being able to piece together what is that entity doing that we haven't been able to see before. Now you're able to pull more information together and arm investigators within a financial institution Better reports, which in turn helps law enforcement or government agencies be able to say, "Okay, this is helpful.
0: How far does good behavior go with big financial firms that do want to improve their compliance programs and not operate in that no failure environment for compliance?
6: I go back to transparency with government institutions and and for our next-gen transaction monitoring process, I like to say that's our touchstone.
0: So you're actually advocating here for an even closer relationship, an even bigger alliance between the government and the private sector.
6: With the complexities of payments and trade going around the world, I would say it has to be. If the government shows up at your door and says, we have a problem... It's probably a very big problem associated with an investigation somewhere, and they need some pieces of data to put together. But at some point, if you're always hammering folks, you know, is there any good news in this business? Are we helping? People want to help. People want to stop these organizations from hurting global economies and financing terrorism, but they're constantly getting hammered. Not necessarily saying by the regulators or or management, but where's the good news in this business? How are we helping you?
0: This EuroMoney podcast was produced, reported, hosted, and edited by me, Nell McKenzie. The music was licensed by Premium Beat and composed by Olive Musique. You've made it all the way to the end. Thanks for listening.